0: going to be in the book of 2nd Kings this morning, 2nd Kings, making the switch from 1st Kings to 2nd, which is really just one big book, but we break it up into two for help us find our place a little bit. So 2nd Kings. <clears throat> Was talking with Shay this morning, and I said, "Well, between the rain and the kind of dreariness outside and Maybe rain will be coming down during my sermon. I'm not sure how this is going to go. I'm not sure how many naps we're going to have this morning. And uh, she said, well, I hope you got something exciting to, uh, to talk about. I hope you got something something good prepared, and I don't know how good the sermon is, but we got fire from heaven, we got chariots going up into heaven, and we've got bears coming out of the woods to kill people. So that's what's coming. Maybe that will keep you awake long enough to be able to, uh, to get to the end of this thing. I think it's going uh, to be good, at least going to be good to, uh, uh, to see what God has for us in what is honestly some of the strangest stories in uh, all of Scripture. We'll, we'll get there here in just a minute. We're, we're talking about Elijah and Elisha. We, we saw kind of the end of Elijah's ministry. We'll see the very end of it uh, today. We saw kind of the end of it uh, last, last week. And uh, we'll see today the, the passing of the mantle, the passing uh, of the title of prophet from Elijah to Elisha uh, this morning. And, and kind of this big, this big shift in salvation history, really, certainly a shift in Israel's history and Uh, I know those names get confusing. Elijah and Elisha. Could we not have just called one, you know, Bob and one Sam? And then we would have been good. We could have figured all this out. But they sound a lot alike, but their names mean something, and their names really kind of help summarize what their ministry is about. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my. God, and we see how he plays that out in his ministry. How he goes forward to uh, to to Mount Carmel, and he confronts Ahab, and he says, "This is who God is. Yahweh is the God. Let me show you as he as he as he confronts the prophets of Baal, and says that that Yahweh is the one, the only." And then Elisha's name means God is my salvation. And what we're going to see with Elisha's ministry is this kind of overriding theme of God who, in the midst of the apostasy and falling away of Israel, continues to save and continues to even look outward outside of Israel to save. So those uh, those two prophets, their ministry, even though they overlap, even though they are similar in a lot of ways, as we'll see over the next few weeks, fundamentally they kind of have a different purpose in the way that God uses them. Elijah's ministry was built around the magnification of the person of God and the name of God, proclaiming Him. And then Elisha is going to be all about proclaiming how salvation is through Yahweh. And so I'm excited to get into some of these stories. And like I said, some of these are uh, are they're, they are doozies. There's some crazy stories that we're going to cover in the next uh, few few weeks. I think Elisha's ministry alone would probably would probably uh, cover about five of the top 10 or top 15 weirdest stories that you will find in the in the Bible. I think I told you about a sermon series that I saw that was called Elisha, Things Get Weird. That's basically where we're heading in the next few weeks. I think it's a pretty apt title for uh, for what he is, and they're going to get real weird real quick. So let's start with 2 Kings chapter 2. Now 2 Kings opens up with a story of Ahab's son, Ahaziah, and uh, kind of this story about him trying to get... This, this blessing and this, uh, this, this prophecy from one of the prophets of Baal, but Elijah actually says, no, that's not how this is going to work. Long story short, uh, Ahaziah ends up dying on the prophecy of Elijah, uh, and, and the, the Ahab's son is, is done, and now we get to 2 Kings 2, and we, we open up here into this place, and what we're going to see is what becomes the end of Elijah's ministry. It wasn't the ministry he wanted, it wasn't the ministry that he had planned, but it was still a spectacular thing to to watch. He still holds the place as Israel's kind of first major prophet, and he was still able to see fire fall from heaven, and God do the spectacular. He saw some amazing things. But then Elijah runs into a problem with his ministry. The main problem that he runs to is God decides that it's time for his ministry to be done. That's as as clear as it gets in the text, it doesn't give a reason why, it doesn't say why it's time for Elijah's ministry to be done, just as it doesn't give a clear reason for why God doesn't allow Elijah's ministry to kind of run its course as he had hoped. Uh, We we don't get any of that really here, it's just it's time for it to be done, Uh, and, and, and the narrative here gets a little strange because it kind of zooms in on a few exchanges between Elijah and Elisha, but it it never really tells us what to make of these exchanges so much as it just records them for us. So let's read in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, and, and see uh, kind of how this dynamic plays out between the two of us. Now remember, uh, Elijah, after coming down from Mount Horeb, goes and anoints Elisha as his successor. But it takes six years to get to this point before Elisha is actually ready to assume that role. And Elijah continues in his role as prophet until then and that's where we get here. Verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, that's the first sign things are about to get weird. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent, sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, if the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Now, I have no idea what that's about. I don't know how they know. I don't know how they found out. I don't know how Elisha knows. We don't know if Elijah knows. But these guys know. And that's all that that the the narrative really tells us. It's all it, it gives us is that all these people know. Elijah may or may not know. But Elijah is about to be taken up into a whirlwind. Keep on going. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? So these guys know in this city too. And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Keep quiet. So this is, the, this is the, the, the dynamic that's going on here. This is kind of what, what's happening is, is uh, Elijah keeps going to these different cities, and he's got business to tend to in these cities. And he keeps telling Elisha, you stay back, you don't come with me. And we don't really know why. We're not 100% sure what's going on there. But it seems as though Elisha, is, he's kind of trying to shake him. Any of you that grew up with like a younger sibling, you know what's going on here. It's like, would you just leave me alone? Would you just stay back, leave me alone? I've got stuff to do. Will you just quit driving me driving me crazy? Uh, but uh, Elisha's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be stuck right here at your side. You cannot shake me. Uh, we're not going anywhere. So these guys, everybody seems to know, but nobody's really talking about it. Everybody's got to be quiet about it. It's, 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 it's kind of a strange, uh, a strange thing. And then we get to this place, and, and Elijah takes off his cloak. He throws down his cloak into the, uh, the, the, the Jordan River where, uh, where they're at, and the Jordan stops flowing. And from there, the two walk across to the other side on dry ground, and Elijah turns and asks Elisha a question. And this is verse 9 where we pick up here. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. So Elijah clearly knows something is up here. He says, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken up from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. We may have a hint of what was going on here with Elijah, maybe. Now you have to read into this a little bit, and some commentators are happy to read in here. Others are saying, no, I don't think that that's necessarily here. But Elisha is asking for a double portion, he wants to be more powerful than Elijah was. He wants this, this extra kind of mojo as a prophet, and he wants to surpass even what Elijah has done. And so maybe some have concluded that Elijah just wasn't ready to be done with his ministry, and he certainly wasn't ready to hand it off to his successor, who would have even more power than he would have. Maybe there's some jealousy may- there. Maybe it's just the fact that he wants to he wants to have that ministry he always wanted, but it looks like Elisha might be getting that kind of ministry. That's total speculation but that's some of what uh what has been thrown out there but but here we are at this place and what we know is about to happen is Elisha has made this request he said i want a double portion elijah says that's hard i don't know if we can do that here's how you know if you get this and what he says is if you see me taken up then you will get this And this double portion that Elisha is asking for, I know it kind of sounds like he's being greedy. Like, make me more powerful than you were. Make me have a better ministry. You know the ministry you wanted? I want it. I want you to bless me with the ministry that you wanted. It sounds like he's being a little greedy, but really, this whole language of double portion, this really goes back to more like inheritance language. The first son was due a double portion from the father. That's how it it was set up to work. And if you'll remember, whenever Elisha became the, uh, became the understudy to Elijah, I don't know if you remember this, uh, I think it's in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. When he becomes the understudy, what he does is immediately, he, he, he kills his, his oxen that he was using to farm. He burns the plows. He is all in on his ministry. He leaves his family. He leaves his profession. He leaves his security. He leaves all of this stuff. He's all in on on, on the ministry of Yahweh and succeeding and being, being with Elijah. And so some of what he is asking for is undoubtedly the same thing that he would have gotten from his father had he stayed at home. He wants to receive that double portion of inheritance that he would have received, but he doesn't want it in stuff. He doesn't want it in land. He doesn't want it in money. He doesn't want it in crops. He wants it in power. He wants to be able to stand up and have the kind of ministry that he knows will make a difference. Now this is frustrating. It has to be frustrating for Elijah. And Elijah says, man, I don't know. We'll see what happens. If it, if it happens this way as I kind of lay out, then so be it. That's how this works. And what we begin to see here is that, that this, this ministry that, that Elijah once wanted now is, 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 is gone. It's just not going to happen the way that he wanted it to. And that's where we have this story of how Elijah's ministry finally comes to its end. Verse 11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried. My father, my father. Again, this comes back to that inheritance. He looks at Elijah like a father. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah, literally taking his his clothing and he had, that had fallen from him. And he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan, went right back to where they were before. And then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? So he's basically testing, do I have this, this kind of power that Elijah had? I just saw Elijah do this miracle. Now let's see if I can do this miracle. So he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. And Elisha went over so we know that the this gift the uh, of the power that elijah had has now been conferred over to uh, elisha and so in a matter of two verses we see the end of this powerful ministry of elijah but it's not because he died it says it's just because he was taken up and that's all it really tells us frustratingly so for people like me who want to be like what just happened here Why did this just happen? How did this just happen? What? How come he doesn't? Everybody else dies. How come he doesn't die? And from the the narrative, we're not we're not even told if this is a punishment or a reward for Elijah. the the assumption is that it's an award or a reward because he's he doesn't get to he doesn't have to die. But we're not we're not really sure. Depending on how you read it, you could read it uh, either way. We don't know if it's a punishment or a reward. We just know. Elijah is no more He's just not here anymore. He's done. He's gone I would love to stand up here and tell you this is some kind of spiritual reward that awaits you if you live your life well for God. You can just avoid this altogether, step out into a tornado, and you're good. That's what I would love to be able to tell you. But that's not how it works. We're not told this in the narrative. We're not given anything like this. We have no idea exactly why this happens. In fact, the only reason that we're given for why, specifically, why Elijah is taken up is so that Elisha could see it. That's the only thing that the text tells us, is that, that he's taken up specifically in a place where Elisha could see it happen. So if Elijah was trying to kind of dodge uh, 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 Elisha getting this, uh, this double portion, well, God's just making sure, nope, okay, if that's the, if that's the rules, then I'm going to make sure that Elisha gets to see this. And Elisha gets to see it. If anything, from what we can read in the text, this whole scene is not for Elijah's benefit, but for Elisha's. And so now after Elijah is taken up in this fiery, dramatic scene of horses and chariots, Elisha walks back over to the river, repeats the miracle that Elijah had just done, and confirms that that Elisha has now taken over for Elijah in his ministry as prophet to Israel. Now, I'll be honest with you. I wrestled with this for a couple of weeks. Uh, you, can, you can talk to the, the staff. I said, hey, what, what, what have you ever heard a sermon? Or when have you ever heard people talk about Elijah being taken into heaven? Like, what have you ever drawn from that? And they're like, I, everybody I talked to was like, I don't, I don't know. It just happened. Like, I don't, I don't know. I've never heard anybody provide a whole lot of, uh, provide a whole lot of context for why it happened or what we can learn from it. I wrestled with what we are supposed to take from this. And to be honest, I think there's one really important lesson. There's probably a few other things that we could kind of throw in there if we wanted to kind of, uh, you know, fudge things a little bit, look at things in a different, different way. But I think the biggest thing that we can take from this is that Elijah's power, as great as it was, as spectacular as it was calling down fire from heaven on multiple occasions predicting the death of the king and all these other things that elijah did that were just so amazing going up and uh, up on mount horeb and, and hearing the still small voice the thin voice of god all of these things as great as it was had nothing to do with elijah himself frustratingly so for elijah He wanted to force things. He wanted to make things happen. But God simply did not allow him to do things in the way that he wanted. And once Elijah is gone, Elisha now assumes the role of prophet. The ministry did not cease simply because Elijah did. Elijah's authority and power was limited to the presence of the word and the spirit of God. Elijah's ministry was not powerful because Elijah was powerful, but because God was. I want you to listen to how James says this in the New Testament. James is instructing elders on how to pray for people, and he says this in James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its James says Elijah was a man just like us, just like you. We read these prophets and their stories, we read these crazy things that happen, and we assume that their experiences are unique because they are uniquely powerful. They were not. They were just like us. Their power came from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The same is true of us today. Hebrews 1, I've read this to you several times over the last few weeks. Hebrews 1, 1, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. So today, we have the Word of God in Scripture, the Word of God in the flesh, in Jesus, and the Spirit of God that indwells every believer. The Word in Scripture points us to Jesus, the Spirit that indwells us points us to Jesus, the same thing, they both point us to Jesus. The authority that is conferred on these prophets is limited to the Spirit and the Word of God. And the authority, any authority that is carried today is limited to the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and to those who would point to jesus listen whatever authority i have as a pastor as i stand up here whatever authority the elders have and and there are places in the scripture that that lay out kind of detail what this looks like whatever authority that we have is limited to the word of god it rests on the word of god and the fact that we keep pointing you to jesus If we stop pointing you to Jesus and we start claiming some sort of authority that's outside of the word of God, then our authority is completely void at that point. This is not some kind of like the man of God stands up here and and has this anointing and this title of pastor and elder grants me some sort of special uh, anointing that means you must bow, submit, and agree. That is not how it works. It means I have a responsibility to lead in areas where God's God's Word directs us, and I have a responsibility to keep pointing us to Jesus and to His glory. God's Word is not limited to any one man, any one ministry, any one pastor. It is fully dependent on the Spirit of God pointing us to Jesus. And that is where Elijah's authority came from. And now that he is gone, Elisha has taken up that authority. So the first thing Elisha does with his new authority is to repeat this miracle that he's just witnessed. He recrossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Now, we don't have time for this. I'm going to give you one, just a few little things I'm going to point out here. But if you want to do a pretty cool Bible study this week... I want you, you, you do this Bible study, you, you, spend a, you can spend a lot of time on this, and it'll, it'll blow your mind a little bit. If you're looking to do this, you compare the life and the ministry of Elisha with that of Joshua. Their names are almost identical in meaning. Elijah, or Elisha takes over for Elijah, much as Joshua took over for Moses. Elijah's first crossing of the Jordan is reminiscent of the first crossing of the Red Sea. And Elisha's second crossing of the Jordan is reminiscent of uh, Joshua's crossing of the Jordan to take the, 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 the promised land in Joshua 3. And after Joshua crossed the Jordan, they set up 12 stones as a memorial uh, for what God had done. And, and, and do you, Does anybody remember the first place that they went? After they crossed over the Jordan. Anybody remember? Nobody? No, pop quiz. You failed. It's Jericho. They go to Jericho, the story of, of, of their, their takeover of Jericho, right? The first place they go is Jericho. And where is the first place that Elisha goes? It's Jericho. It's three little verses, but I love this story here. I want you to listen to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad. This is the city at Jericho. Uh, But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a bowl, and put salt in it. And they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of the water, and he threw salt in it. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water, and from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now it is easy to move right past that. Like, okay, he, he 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 cured some spring, he purified some spring. What does this have to do with anything? What makes this so good is that this is a peek into how God works so often. Elisha the new Joshua makes his way to Jericho where Joshua had been and when he gets there they bring him this water and they tell him don't drink this water because it's made this land unfruitful what we find out is that it had had, mis, had caused uh, loss of life it had caused mis, uh, miscarriages It had caused all kinds of problems within the city and so whenever he gets there uh, he, they say don't they say don't drink this and we find out that this water is causing uh, these, these miscarriages as though the city is, is cursed. And that's because it is cursed. It's cursed uh, in part because after the city fell, Joshua had placed under a, a curse anyone that would try and rebuild the city of Jericho. And now we have the new Joshua, but instead of calling for the redestruction of the city... Remember, if Joshua has said, nobody is to rebuild the city, but now he's going to the city that has been rebuilt, a, a, a very likely outcome would be that the prophet would walk back into the city and say, this was not supposed to rebuild, it should not be rebuilt, it shouldn't be here, it should be gone. I call for the, the redestruction of this city as we saw it in the days of old. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he walks into the city that should not exist. And instead of condemning it to redestruction, he fixes their problem. He purifies their water supply using some, some salt. And it's not because the salt had any kind of value. The salt is emblematic of a purification uh, ritual that, uh, that, that would happen. And, and it, I find this story so beautiful because it gives us a glimpse into the heart of God in a place where we would not expect to find it. Elisha offers healing and mercy instead of judgment. Even for a city like Jericho that never should have been rebuilt, it did not deserve that kind of mercy and that kind of grace. Yet that's exactly what they received from God at the hand of Elisha. Christian, this morning, there, if you hear nothing else out of this sermon, can you, not, can you not identify with this city and the people of this city the mercy of God like this that He gives it to you when you do not? deserve it when you have failed when you have been warned and when you have failed again when you have deserved punishment and yet when you come to god you come to his word and then you are indwelt by his spirit time and time again you receive grace and mercy that is enough for us to rejoice in this morning that we can find mercy in places we have no business even looking for it Let alone actually finding it. Most of all in the depths and the darkness of our own hearts. Which brings me to our next story that could not be more different in its tone, that could not be more different in in its its outcome, and a story that would be funny if it weren't so flat out terrible. All right, second Kings chapter two, verse twenty three. If you don't know the stories in the Bible, you're getting ready to get your mind blown, okay? He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up, this is Elisha, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came from out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And from there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. What in the world? Did we really just read a story in the Bible where a bunch of kids make fun of a guy for being bald and he sends a bear out to kill him? That's exactly what we just read. What in the world does this say about God if his prophet can do this kind of thing? What what do we make of this? I've been in conversations with people that have pushed this story back to me and said, that's your God, no thanks, you can have him. No thanks, not really interested in that. What what does this say about Elisha, and what does this say by proxy about his God? Is God really that thin-skinned that he can't take a joke about a bald head? Is he really gonna? Is, is this really how this is gonna this is gonna work? I, I probably shouldn't say this. I saw I saw somebody who, who, who did a uh, a sermon on this, and he said that he wanted to he <laughs> he wanted to name his sermon on this Bears win by forty two. I knew Jacob would laugh at that one. But what do, we, what do we make out of this? This is a crazy story, and it seems terrible. What do we make out of this? This story is troubling. I don't care how you look at it. I don't care how you, how you, you, you go through this. But these verses actually contain a lot that teach us about Elisha's ministry and about how God intends to be known. So the first thing to understanding this story is we have to understand that there's really a lot going on in just a few verses. The first, first, the key is where this takes place. Where this takes place. Elisha is traveling outside the city of Bethel. Now Bethel, the, the, the word, it should mean the house of God. But that is not what the city of Bethel has become known for. He's on his way past or, or to the city of Bethel. He's on his way, and, and it says while he was going up. So he wasn't quite there yet, hadn't made it to the, the city. And these boys came out of the city, so they weren't, he didn't go into the city and run into these guys. They came out of the city to greet him. They came after him. They come out of the city to, to taunt him. So, so there's a couple of things that are happening here that we need to understand that in, in order to help us really have a fuller picture of what's happening. So first, we need to know why Bethel is such a key place to this story. If, if you go back a few generations, go back to, uh, uh, back to the, the book of 1 Kings, and, and, and if you, you'll see that Bethel plays a pretty big role in when uh, Israel really went sideways. And if you'll remember, we talked about this the very first week we talked about the book of Kings. The two kingdoms split, Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom, the capital was Jerusalem. Well, that's important because what that means is the Southern Kingdom got the temple. The Southern Kingdom got the place where you're supposed to go to worship Yahweh. Now, they didn't always do great in having that. It wasn't the advantage that it should have been. But what that meant is that the Northern Kingdom had no place to go and offer their formal worship. And what we saw was that the king at the time, Jeroboam, set up, uh, he he had this great idea that he would set up kind of their their own new temple, their own new temple. And where did he set that temple up? In Bethel. And that temple, what sat outside that temple or or really as a part of the the courtyard of that, that temple were two golden calves. Does that ring a bell? So exactly the, 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 the idolatry that was happening in, in Exodus. Now we fast forward. We got the city at Bethel, the two golden calves, this new temple. And what, what they said is this would be the new place for you to go to worship. Don't go to worship at the temple of Yahweh. Come here to this temple, temple where you can worship Baal. The golden calves are set up and, and Bethel was to be the hub for that. So now these guys, several generations later, would have been steeped in the worship of Baal. They would, have had, they, would have, they would have had no need for a prophet of Yahweh to show up in their town. So when they saw this guy coming, they set out to intimidate him and prevent him from messing with their city. Not only that, it, it, it could have said they were all killed. It doesn't. It says specifically 42 of them were killed. So it's likely that there were far far more than 42. There were... There were probably 50 plus that were coming after Elisha. And the translation here says small boys. But that's not a great, it, this is not like a bunch of toddlers coming out to him. This is not what we're, we're talking about. This is somewhere between the ages of 15 and 25 to 30 that this word would be used to describe. And there's even some indication that this word could have been used also to describe some of the young, uh, the, the, the young attendants to the uh, to the priest in the service of the temple now it's kind of iffy some people think that that is what it is other people are like "Nah, it's not so much what it is but either way this isn't a bunch of like little kids this is older in probably high school to college age that are coming out here and they're coming out against one guy Elisha and they're trying to intimidate him and they're trying to scare him and to keep him from from bringing the word of God and the power of God into this city. So with all that context, we have a different story at work here. Large group, 50 young men come out of the city. Upon seeing Elisha, they have sought to, at minimum, intimidate and taunt him to keep him from coming to the city. If not, worse, we don't know what would have happened had he not called the bears out on them. And mocking the prophet, they are very, very clearly trying to keep the prophet and therefore keep Yahweh from messing with their town and with their gods. It's bad enough that they are mocking a prophet. To mock the prophet would be tantamount to mocking God. Think, think back to Elijah, Elijah on Mount Carmel, when he mocks the prophets of Baal. He's not just mocking the prophets. he's mocking their God, too right? This is the same thing that's going on here. They're not just mocking Elisha. They're mocking his God too. They were actively trying to keep God out of their city. And it's in this context that Elisha curses them. The bear comes out and destroys these young men. And it's not as if Elisha didn't have warrant or backing for his curse. In fact, if these boys had bothered to read the law that Yahweh had given the nation of Israel, they would know this exact thing would happen. Exact thing. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 21 contains this warning. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. Which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted it's pretty crazy huh god told them it would happen he warned them it would happen and it did so what do we do with these two stories one a God of mercy where you would not expect to find it, and the other a God of judgment, where, at least according to Old Testament law, they should have fully expected to find it. Is God just flippant in deciding which He will be that day? Is he too weak to take a joke? Is he arbitrary and impossible to read and to know what does God really want? Is he vain and arrogant? Seeking vengeance for anyone that would dare mock him. The Bible's clear. God's mercy and God's judgment are not set against one another. He is a righteous God who does not flinch at the need or the execution for justice. Psalm 7 verse 11 says this. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, and he has has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It's probably not on your coffee mug. It's not a great one for the coffee mug, but it's there. But it also says he's a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always shide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. You've got to remember some of the context of what's happening there with these, these, these boys coming out to taunt Elisha. This is after generations of apostasy, of turning their back on God. Yes, it's terrible for those 42 and for those families. But you can certainly see how this tragedy could have served as a warning for the rest of the town and the rest of the nation. God is not to be trifled with and to be mocked. Repent and come back. A small tragedy in order to bring about a a, a bigger and greater repentance, but that that never happens. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to to our iniquities. I once heard that referred to as the riddle of the Old Testament. How can a God be a righteous judge, who feel, a God who feels indignation every day? This means that He doesn't turn His back on the sins. He feels it, He sees it, He knows it. How can that God, a righteous judge, not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities? How can both of those be true? Those are in direct contradiction with one another. Either he's not righteous because he doesn't deal with iniquity, or he is righteous and he does deal with it, and he gives the the punishment that is deserved. The answer to that, of course, is found in Jesus. Isaiah 53, exactly where... Chandis reference this morning, Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is another prophet speaking to Israel saying, this is the one who would come. The one to look, the suffering servant that would come. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the riddle of the Old Testament. Hinted at by the prophets of God. W- warned about the absence of, 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 of having someone to step in by the prophets of God. Answered in the person of Jesus who, who we learned about God through the prophets and in the book of Hebrews he says, now we know about God because of what he has done through Jesus. The riddle only finds its answer in Jesus. Where God shows that he is righteous, he is just, where where he wets his sword, he has bent and readied his bow and Jesus is the recipient of of that blow. Jesus is the recipient of, of, of the, the deadly weapons and the fiery shafts that God has lined up, deservedly so, for us. Just as if we were the city of Jericho, not deserving mercy, not expecting mercy. And yet, in, G, in, in Jesus, God maintains his righteousness and his graciousness. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's why we show up here. It's why we worship. And it's why we point to Jesus every time we can. Every Sunday we point to Jesus. The one who endured that pain, who suffered for our transgressions, and was crushed for our iniquities. Will you pray with me? Father this morning as we read these stories this morning as we consider these texts that are that are so so outside of our own experience and so hard for us to fully see what is going on I pray that you would open our eyes to your grace and to your mercy that you would open our eyes that we would understand exactly what it is that you have done for us in the person of Jesus Father, we thank you that we no longer have to rely on the message of the prophets, but instead we can go straight to your son and we can see exactly how he solves this riddle. And how we can know you as both righteous and gracious. Father, this morning for those that have not, that have not given their sin and their lives to Jesus, for those that have not that have not understood what that is about. For those that are still outside of, uh, of you, that are outside of Christ, I pray that, that these, these words of God's justice and how he does not overlook unrighteousness and sin, Father, I pray that that would strike their hearts. That they would recognize that, that where it says that your, your bow is, is, is readied, that at this moment, that bow is right for them. But Father, I, I praise you that you are slow to anger, that you are gracious in love, that, you, are, that you, you abound in those things. And I pray for everyone in this room that they would not walk out of here having not seen Jesus place their lives under his saving, wrath-absorbing grace. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.